Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so last week, Isaiah started his long description of the servant. We talked about how that kind of started around chapter 49, chapter 50, um, and uh, the, the scenario that he is writing to, he's writing to a bunch of people who have not actually experienced exile yet. He's writing to a group of people who won't experience exile for another hundred years. He's writing in a time period where the people are high off of Assyria just being destroyed. They literally watched 185,000 and Assyrians be wiped out overnight, and everyone's just, man, they are just pumped. They're, they're, they're high on the fact that God is just showing up strong for them. And then this nation Babylon comes in. Uh, they, they are doing kind of this, this tour where they want to raise support for uh, creating alliances with other nations, and the king Hezekiah lets them in, and uh, Isaiah finds out that Hezekiah, deep in his heart, has kind of got this desire to, to, to want to uh, create a covenant with Babylon after God just showed himself strong in destroying Assyria, and Isaiah's like, you, you know, look, because of what you did and because of the, the, the nation's desire to constantly, every at the drop of a hat, turn their eyes off of the Lord and find alliances here in the world, the Lord is going to take this land from you. You're gonna go into exile. And so Isaiah is writing to a people who will be in exile. They're not in it yet, but he's, he's looking 100 years in the future and he's writing to these people. And when he's writing to these people, he's giving them hope. He's saying, look, even though you're in exile, you won't read this and make sense of it for 100 years, but when you're in the middle of it, when you're in the darkest of ages and you've lost your home and you've got nowhere to live and you're a slave to Babylon and you, just, and you rediscover these scriptures, I want you to take hope because God's got this twofold plan where he's gonna set you free from Babylon at the hands of this guy named Cyrus. Then he named him 100 years before he was even born but he's gonna set you free and you're gonna come back to your homeland and you're gonna rebuild. So you're gonna be free from Babylon, but there's still a problem because you can be free from Babylon, but not free from sin. And that's the issue. That's the issue that's always been the issue from Israel, for Israel. That they were a free people. They were set free from Egypt, but they were still, they were still slaves to something in here. They weren't slaves to Egypt, but they were still slaves to something. They weren't slaves to Babylon, but they were still slaves to something. And what the prophet starts unfolding in these chapters, he started last week and he continues today, is this idea that this is not just plaguing Israel. This is plaguing all mankind. Every man who has ever been born was plagued with this slavery. Every person who has ever been born was born under this iniquity, under this bondage, with these shackles called sin and death. It doesn't matter who was born, all of them have been sentenced to death. There's not a single person who's ever lived who didn't have some expiration date on God's calendar. And that's the curse. That curse has made us slaves to sin. So what the prophet is rolling out here is that God's plan is not just to release Israel from Babylon and free them from the slavery and bondage of exile, but also to set them free from sin and death. And he's going to do this through the plan of this servant. 
Now we talked last week how this servant we discover in the New Testament is actually Jesus. And the servant's mission is to overcome sin and death and to make all mankind truly free, to release them from that bondage. The question today that we're gonna discover in 52, 53, 54, and 55 is how does this work? How can this servant set us free from slavery? And the answer that we started discovering last week, and we'll see even more this week, is that he is going to come and pay the price for your freedom. I want you to imagine in your mind that you are standing before a judge and you have been sentenced to death because of your crimes of sin. That the punishment for sin is death and you have a death penalty on you for your sins. And all of a sudden, the doors from the back of the courtroom swing open and this servant walks in and says, I will take the punishment for him. And then you're free. But he has to take the punishment. That's good news that now you're free, but he has to take your punishment. Those iniquities will be laid on him and he will bear them for you. But that's how freedom comes. It's wild that Isaiah is discussing this 700 years before Jesus is even born, but that's where we're going today. Isaiah 52 through 55 is split up in three sections. The first being the work of the servant, Jesus. The second being the response to the servant, Jesus. Here's what he's gonna do, so how do we respond to that? How do God's people respond to the fact that God is giving us his son to take our iniquities on himself. How, what is the response to that? And then th the third section is the worldwide invitation for all to follow this servant. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Isaiah 52, start in verse one. It says, awake, awake. Now that is a call back to 51 verses nine and 17 when the prophet is calling on God. God, wake up, see what your people are going through. And God says, I'm awake. I'm not the one who needs to wake up. My people need to wake up. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. You guys, you wake up to what I'm doing. Put on your strength. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise and be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you are sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. So it started off with my people being in bondage down to Egypt and then came the Assyrian oppression, but that stood for nothing. Verse five, now therefore, what have I here? declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, or their rulers are gonna wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is gonna be despised. Why is his name gonna be despised among the nations? Because the nations thought they were in control, and all of a sudden the Lord shows up with this servant who's gonna suffer and free the people, and everyone's like, well, that, well you're not playing by the rules. Therefore my people shall know my name, 
Therefore, in that day, when I do what I'm going to do, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. All right, so pause right there because we're starting off with this wake-up call that contrasts Babylon in 47.1. Do you remember when the prophet spoke to Babylon in 47 and said, you, Babylon, are a princess who overstepped your boundaries and you made life miserable for my people and so I'm gonna punish you. I'm gonna remove you off of your seat, your throne as a princess and I'm gonna put you down into the dust as a servant girl. That was 47.1. Now in 52.1 and 2, we're seeing this contrast where Israel is gaining the seat. They were the servant girl down in the dust and now they're gonna gain their seat of prominence. And I bring this up because it's important for us to know that this is a literary tool that the prophets and the New Testament writers use on a regular basis. There's this, um, it's kind of like a, um, like a poetic counterbalance, if you will. Um, there's one thing, it's like he must decrease, uh, he must, I must decrease so that he may increase. Um, there's the, the Babylon is gonna go down into the dirt and Israel is gonna be raised up. There's this concept that if you, if you want to see the things of the Lord, if you wanna gain eternal life, you have to forsake the things of this world. There's this, there's this counterbalance when it comes to the kingdom of God. And the reason why he does that is to shame the wisdom of this world, to make it look foolish. Because if you wanna get ahead in this world, what do you have to do? You gotta build an empire. And you gotta build that empire on the bodies of people that you conquered. And the Lord says, that's, that's not how it works. You, you, wanna, you wanna be great? Get on your knees and wash some feet. What? That doesn't make any sense. This is the poetic counterbalance that exists all throughout scripture. And as you're reading and studying, this is the thing that you should tune your eyes and your ears, your ears to. So when you see it, like, ah, oh, there it is again, there it is again. The reason why he does this is to remind us that the way that we think about things is not the way that he thinks about things. His ways are much higher than ours. And if we wanna start understanding wisdom and the way God works, we have, to, we have to embrace this counterbalance that the way to advance and grow and mature is to get lower and lower and lower. Okay, maturity in Christ is not this ladder that you're climbing up, it's a hole you're digging and getting into. Okay, it's a, it's a getting low. It's not a broadcasting of yourself. And then we're told in verses three and five and six that God is gonna do this thing. He's gonna do this thing without paying off creditors in verse three because he doesn't owe anybody anything. In verse five, he's gonna do this thing and the nations are gonna wail and curse because they thought they were in control but they're not actually in control. In verse six, God's gonna do this thing so that Israel will know God's name. But this idea of knowing God's name is larger than just knowing the name of God, Yahweh. This is, this is God is gonna do this thing so his people will be more acquainted with his reputation and his fame. This is more than just knowing the name of Jesus. This is more than just knowing Yahweh, the name, the Lord of hosts. This is more than that. This is becoming intimately acquainted with his reputation and his fame and the way he does things so that you don't constantly trip over his plans because you're trying to force his plans through your way of doing things. The more, the more familiar, familiar you are with his ways, the less you will trip over your ways because you will understand his are higher. And so default, when I get into a tough situation and the pressure is coming on and I'm looking around and I don't know how to, how to resolve this situation, 
I don't default to my thing. I don't pull out a piece of paper and start writing pros and cons. No, I get on my face and pray because he knew it was coming and he's already got the answer. And my responsibility is to just ask him to take care of it for me. Lord, is there a role I'm supposed to play? Do I need to put my hands to the plow and do anything? Or do you want me to just sit back and watch you work? That's how this works. This isn't a you getting involved and making things happen on God's behalf. If that's what it was, we don't need him for that. We, we just need you for that. We can all get behind you for your amazing, wonderful plans. And that's the issue we're struggling with today um, with, with the way that, that governments and that worldly systems and that nations are trying to solve the problems of our day. They're begging us to line up behind them and they're saying, we have answers to the problems. Please just follow us. The problem with that is that it demands an allegiance to that and that there is no precedent for the world's ways bringing about any eternal change. The only eternal change comes when we all get behind Jesus and say, I'm surrendering my way of doing things. We don't know the best way to fix this stuff but we know a God who does, and so I'm gonna change what I think to what he thinks, and then all of a sudden things start making sense. You following? Okay. So he's declaring his reputation and his fame. He's declaring that I am God. He says here, I am. He's associating himself with the God of Moses. He's saying I am a victorious God who had the power to set people free out of Egypt and I have the power to set you free out of Babylon. And the news of that is gonna come in like, like a city that's under siege and you're on the inside of it and it seems like no hope because there's an army right at the gates but all of a sudden you're gonna hear the good news proclaimed on the mountaintop that your God has defeated your enemy and all you were doing was cowering inside the castle. But that's good news, because he did it for you. And that imagery is laid out in verse seven. So let's go there. Isaiah seven, verse seven through 12. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. When I was locked in my city, and the enemy was pounding at the gate, when sin was coming for me, when death was a sure thing, the enemy is pounding at the gate. How good and how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, who publish peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. My face is in the dirt and I can hear that constant pounding at the door. He's coming for you. The enemy is gonna destroy you. You have no hope. Your God has forsaken you and then all of a sudden on the top of a mountain you hear a man cry out, victory, victory, victory. Stop smashing your face into the dust and stop dry up your tears because he has been destroyed. Your God has set you free. This is the picture Isaiah is painting for us. The voice of your watchmen, these watchmen up on the, the, the mount or on the top of the city who are supposed to be watching for news like this, when they see this, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Verse 13. 
So break forth together into singing, everybody. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations. I'm here for that, okay? What is that in Hebrew? That's the Lord rolling, I'm not gonna embarrass you. He rolls up his sleeve and he just flexes on all of the nations. I don't even need a sword, really. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So what, is, what, what do we do? Depart, depart. Go out from there. Stop, stop sitting in your own sorrow. Get up and leave. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. You call yourself a follower of the Lord? Stop sitting in your sorrow and listen to the good news shouted from the mountaintops that your God has conquered sorrow. Get up and leave that city. Stop making a home for yourself in that sorrow. Get out of there. Run at top speed. For you shall not go out in haste. You shall go out in flight for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So the prophet's painting this picture for us that helps us understand what the Lord's gonna do and how this feels for us. And he's saying it's most like hearing the good news of a town crier standing up on the top of a mountain saying your God reigns in verse seven. All right. Now we have this picture that the servant is gonna be victorious over sin and death and he's crying out, he has won the battle. And we, we, we can start to see these parallels of the beautiful feet bringing the good news. And okay, okay, I start to see what you're doing here. Because now I'm familiar with some of the text from the New Testament. I'm, I'm thinking of Romans, and I'm thinking about the idea that, that the good, the, the feet of those who are spreading good news, those are, those are the ones who are sharing the gospel. All right, now I'm with you. And start, you, so you're starting to see what Isaiah is seeing here. This is not just a prophetic vision. It's like, wow, that's a pretty cool prophetic vision. No, no, he's looking 700 years in the future. He's looking 2,700 years into the future about what the servant will accomplish. And what does he see? How will this servant gain this victory? Go to 52 verse 13. Sorry, this is uh, just a really bad uh, paragraph break. Whoever put these paragraphs and verses in, they did a a, a terrible job. So 52.13 is actually connected to 53. So we're gonna read 52.13 down through 53. So this servant, how how is the servant gonna gain this victory? How did this good news come about? How how are we now free and how can we run out and touch no unclean thing and run out in haste? Well, verse 13, servant shall act wisely and she'll be, excuse me, he shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Well, there's a double meaning. Because no man has ever been described as being high and lifted up. That's a God term. God is high and lifted up, not man. But this God man was high and lifted up. When they nailed him to that cross, And as many were astonished at you when they they gazed upon you, the servant, 
because his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance. And the form beyond that of the children of mankind, they could barely even recognize you when you were high and lifted up on that cross. So shall he sprinkle, that's a, that's a translation thing there, could be sprinkle, could be startle. I like startle better than sprinkle. So shall he startle many nations when he's hanging up on that cross. Kings will shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So this plan, nobody saw it coming. Not even the kingdom of darkness. If they had, they would not have crucified him. Verse 153, so who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground, like a shoot from the stump of Jesse. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. We're talking about the servant here, Jesus. He was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, as we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for your iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every single one, all mankind, everybody, has turned to their own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken and the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Remember that borrowed tomb? Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Watch this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's you. That's you. And he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12 is the picture of the resurrection. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide with the spoil, the spoil with the strong. Oh, so there's spoil? Yeah, because this is a victory. 
Why is there a victory? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Oh, that's good, huh? The servant, Jesus, is gaining victory for, the, for all mankind through suffering and death. See, up to this point, when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, God established this entire system where sin could be atoned for. Not for all time, but could be atoned. Sin that you deliberately uh, uh, committed and sin that you didn't even realize that you committed as an offense to God. This stuff could be atoned for in this system of shedding innocent blood. And that was the animal sacrifice system that the priests were uh, stewards over. The problem was that this system had a flaw. Because while it accounted for the atonement of these sins, it wasn't a long lasting thing and it had to be done regularly every year when you had to revisit it. And it never really brought true freedom. It atoned for sin, but it didn't set the people free. So God said, my plan is finally at the place where I will start revealing it to mankind and that plan is, I'm gonna send a servant, I'm gonna send my son and he is going to bear the weight of sin for all mankind. I'm gonna let him, it's gonna be my will to crush him with the sin of all mankind so that his blood will now become the atonement for those sins. That we won't need to do this animal sacrifice thing anymore that covers just a few things. I am going to establish and release this plan that will set all mankind free for all time. And there will not be any worry about whether it was good enough or whether it covered this, but not this. It was good enough to cover it all for all time. And Isaiah saw it coming before anybody did. Isaiah looked forward and he said, I see this servant. Now for a moment, I want you to think about this timeline. I've mentioned it quite a few times as we go through here, but I want you to think about the timeline of what we're talking about here. This was written seven centuries before it took place. And then it was taken, then it took place and now we're over 2,000 years removed from it. So what we're reading about was written 2,700 years ago. This is what God was doing 700 years before Jesus was born. This is what God has been doing since the resurrection on that Sunday. It's what he's doing today. And I want that to inform us on what God is up to. Because I think that we have a habit as church people of, of not being satisfied with the good news being good enough. I think we're convinced that there's gotta be something more that we're supposed to be doing. This is the same thing he's been doing for a long time. Is there, is there like a new thing he's doing? Is it? I got news for you. No. This is it. This is what he's always been doing. This is what he's doing today, it's what he'll be doing tomorrow, it's what he'll be doing 10,000 years from now if he doesn't return soon. 
What does that tell us? It tells us that you don't have to spend the majority of your time sifting through the news of the day to get a sense of what God is up to. He's up to the same thing he's always been up to, and that is seeking and saving. He is coming for his people, and he is saving them. And that is the thing that we should be up to, the, be, putting our hands to the plow and participating in the work of God of seeking and saving. That's what he's up to. It's what he's always been up to. This is the plan. This is the good news. And this is what has been entrusted to us. So our option today is we either listen and follow or we don't. That's it. The Lord is seeking and saving. And he is hot on the trail of sinners. He is pursuing like a man of war your prodigal son or prodigal daughter. He is hot on their trail. He is seeking and saving. And we can decide to either trust and obey or not. Now go into 54. Now we've seen what the servant has done What is the response to the servant? What is God's people's response? What is Israel's response? What is the people's God's response to the servant? Verse one, it says, sing, O barren one who did not break, excuse me, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. Do you ever wonder why we sing so much as Christians? Why is half the service singing? Why are there so many worship albums? Why is singing such a big part of what we do? It's because this is what the the Bible tells us this is what we're supposed to do. Singing is obedience to scripture. That's why we sing, because the Bible tells us to. It is the natural response to beholding that the king is at the door seeking and saving. What do I do with that information? I sing, I cry out loud, You who have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. You think you made a good life before you met him, but you don't even know what a good life is until you surrender to him. So go ahead and start enlarging the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out and do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes because you will not be able to contain what the Lord is gonna do. And you're like, oh, okay, we talking new car, we're talking new house, we're talking new job, we're talking about 401k, we're talking about inheritance. No, that's not what he's talking about. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the intangibles that are worth more than that. Because I can show you people in this world who have nothing but have more than you. Because there are things in this world that are worth more than stuff. Now, I'm not saying that you, you shouldn't, like, you need to sell everything and go live in the street as a poor person. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that whatever God has entrusted with you should be tools to be used for his kingdom. But the moment that those tools own you rather than you owning them, there's the problem. See, the problem isn't stuff. The problem is stuff owning you. And so when he says, enlarge your tent pegs, he's not necessarily saying, get ready for a blessing that's gonna come in the mail and have a dollar sign at the front of it. 
What he's saying is that get ready for the kind of abundance that comes that you can't, can, get ready for the fact that when you host a small group and nobody knows who you are, you've got too many people in your house for you to feed. Get ready for the fact that when you, if you were to get sick and go into the hospital, that you've got an army of people behind you with casserole dishes saying, we're just here to bless you. Get ready for the fact that when something devastating happens in your life and you ask for prayer, that you get blown up with people who will not stop praying for you and checking on you and making sure that your soul is at rest and things are being taken care of. Go ahead and start expanding those tent pegs because you're gonna need a lot of room for the family that's coming behind this king who's redeeming. Verse three, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. But there's something else, okay? So we've got singing, that's the, the response. We've got enlarging your tent, but here's the other thing that people who hear the gospel message naturally do. They stop being afraid of everything. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, you will not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will not forget the shame of your, your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. What is he called? The God of the whole earth. Look, these nations may not like this, but the God of the whole earth is the God of the nations. Whether you acknowledge he exists or not, our God is the God over everything. That's what this says. This is what he tells us about himself. He says, it doesn't matter if you, if you wanna pretend like I don't exist. I exist and I am the God over your life and this world and everything, because I made it, I'm in charge, Amen. I'm it. And I chose to redeem you by sending my own son to give his life for you. And if you wanna reject that, you're gonna be on the other receiving end of my rolled up sleeved arm. But if you don't want that and you want forgiveness of your sins, there is an abundant life that you can rejoice in when you surrender to the work of the servant and the response is, man, you can start expanding your tent pegs. You can stop being afraid of everything in this world. Fear is not a thing that Christians live with. That's what this tells us. When you see the work of Jesus, literally, what do, if he tells you, I have conquered death, what else is there? What are you afraid of? Mm. that's not a popular message. No, because here in this world, we like saving our lives, but that's not the call of Christ. The call of Christ is you may be called to lay down your lives, and what he will do with that laid down life is more than you could ever do with your lived life. But you won't know it if you love this life more than you love him. Six through 17, the rest of 54, the Lord continues to encourage his people. And then I wanna pick up in 55.1. This is the invitation that the Lord extends to the entire world. So what we have here is we've got the work of the servant. We've got the response of Israel, God's people, holy smokes, this is amazing. 
We need to start participating in this. And this amazing thing is not just for us. This is an invitation extended to the entire world. Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without any money, without price. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't need our money in his economy? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? This is the invitation to the nations. Come and feast for free. And then he turns and says, I've got an invitation to come and feast for free. Why in the world are you spending all of your money on bread that doesn't satisfy? Why are you toiling in your life to chase things that they don't feed you? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. What I had for him, I'll give to you. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall... Call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. So seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. And it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I can send it. See, that's why we study the word of God because we're promised in it that it doesn't return void. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The servant's work impacts the entire world. There is no cost and the invitation is for everyone to come. And this invitation is borrowed in the New Testament from Paul. All right, just briefly, I wanna read you his words from Romans 10, 11 through 15. It says, everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame, but there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's what we just read. What the Lord's inviting the world to is not just for nation of Israel. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For everyone, what is that, what's the Greek in that? Everyone, that is Greek for everyone. 
Everyone, everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone sent? Oh, that's why it was written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So here's my question. Can you see the progression, the progression of Isaiah's laying out for us? He's saying, this is the work of the servant. This is what it means for Israel. This is what it means for the entire world. What Isaiah is looking at is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's looking at Acts. He's looking at Red Hills Church. He's looking out in the future and he's saying, I cannot believe what this will mean for the nations. This is what you're up to? This changes everything. And this is what we have been invited into. This is the invitation. This is what we've been invited to participate in. This is the beautiful story. It's not a better version or rewritten story of your story. I love you, but no one cares about your story. (laughs) You know what story we want? We want his story. His story is what matters because his story includes your story. Your story is the redemption at the work at the hands of him. It's not how you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps and made something for yourself. It's how he changed you. He put you in the grave like his son, and he raised you up into new life, and now you're a new creature. You're not a better version. You're a different. You're completely new. You are a new creation. So this is a story we've been invited into. The invitation is, hey, people, join the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords by breaking out in song. That's the invitation. Come and sing with the crazy, nutty people of God who do weird things that make no sense, like sing loud and raise hands and clap and gather together to sing songs about Jesus. Participate. Join in the great song that's been going on for years. It is, it is happening in heaven. Break forth in song. Here's the invitation. Join in proclaiming the good news to the cities in this world that are under siege. The cities being your neighbor, your daughter, your brother, your cousin, your coworker, your boss. Cities under siege that need a town crier from the mountain point shouting, you have been set free. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry, I I went too far. I got a tickle. (laughs) We're invited to trust Jesus and his ways. But here's my favorite thing. We're invited to sing, we're invited to shout, we're invited to participate in sharing the gospel message. We're those beautiful feet that share the good news of Jesus. But here's my favorite part. We're invited to follow the same path that the servant followed, the path of suffering. Oh, no, no, no. Shouldn't have gone there. We could have ended it like three minutes ago. 
Don't talk about that. Look, I know that this isn't popular, but this is Bible. What's popular is, man, come to Jesus, and you're gonna have the best life you've ever had. All your pain, all your sorrow, gonna come to an end. That's not the promise of Jesus. The promise of Jesus is that pain and that sorrow will finally have purpose. There will be meaning because it will be redeemed for his good work and he will use it as a tool in his hands to reach those who have also walked a similar path as yours. And you'll be able to use that thing that you thought would crush you as the thing that opens the door and drives the wedge into the heart of this worldly system who says the best thing you could do is focus in on yourself. Make much of yourself. Lift yourself high. But then there's another message coming from the mouth of a man on a hill shouting, that's not right. Jesus, he's the one that we make much of. He's the story that we follow. He's the path we get behind, and it's a path of sorrow. This path that we're invited to participate in is not some quick religious reward filled with some kind of experience that you can chase or some constant transplanting when you feel uncomfortable or upset. That's not the path of Jesus. The path of Jesus doesn't look like something you decorated with your own little things to make it more look more like you. That's not the path of Jesus. The path of Jesus is a long, narrow walk in one direction, and it's filled with the pea gravel of suffering. And it is a beautiful, worthwhile road to walk. And if that's not the message you follow, then who you're following isn't Jesus. And I got news for you, there's no shortage of Jesuses in this world. Every religion's got a Jesus. You don't like this Jesus? The Mormons, they've got a different Jesus. You can follow that Jesus. Mm, I said it, sorry. But it's the truth. There is no shortage of Jesuses to follow. But there is only one who gave himself for you, who bore your iniquities on his shoulders, who took your suffering who gave his life for you and then triumphed over death and says, come follow me in my sufferings to inherit eternal life. That's my Jesus. And that is your Jesus. He's the one we're following and there is no greater man to follow and there is no greater path to walk. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless. 